This is my own private domicile and I will not be harassed! Bitch! Gangsters, what's up guys? What's the grant to a motherfucker like me? Can you please remind me? Get the world by the tail! Fat broads and horse-faced lesbians. Cute as shit. Oh, 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 skip, skip, skip. If you don't chew big red, then f you. That's so horny. Could you imagine if I hit the old water pipe with that thing? Oh. Great cash, homie. Three, two, one, let's fuck! Everybody's got to hear the shit on W Balls, W Balls, W Balls. Hello, everybody. Hello, hello, hello. Happy Sunday. I know that you are, uh, I, I am recording this on a Friday. I've gotten actually better at recording this stuff on a Friday. So once again, can you dig it? I can. My name is Sam LaCrosse, host of the Do Not Listen to This podcast. And this week is going to be a pretty um, unique set of circumstances, I would say. I don't even know if that's the right word, but a pretty unique set of circumstances with the podcast. So usually I, I if you guys keep track, I don't know if you really read my blog or whatever or listen to this podcast for that matter. I don't know if anyone's listening. But with the podcast, what I kind of do is I alternate between original content that I write that week and content that I kind of have either cycled back in the past or want to revisit, or in, actually both in all, all occasions. And I usually just do normal, like my typical quote-unquote normal blog posts, ones that I write on a, week, uh, a last year weekly, this year bi-weekly basis. But I was actually getting to some of my older content, my older ideas. I kind of abandoned. This is one of my, the ideas that I, you know kind of turned out to be really shitty that I um, you know kind of threw out about halfway throughout the year. One because I didn't really have the uh, the capacity to keep up with it, and the other one being that I just didn't really feel like it added a lot of value and did really what it did. But there was one post I was looking through these the other day because I you know they're not under the typical dated session. They used to be called culture posts, so I had a thing called culture posts. And obviously those are not a thing anymore, so I just threw them in an other tab and kind of threw them into the uh, don'treadthisblog.com ether. Now, I was revisiting these the other day, just kind of perusing the website actually this morning about what I was going to talk about and what post I was going to revisit, and one really kind of caught my eye, and I had watched the movie on this the other day, so I, it was a post about the two Joker films, or not the two Joker films, the films that had the character of the Joker in it, one that was called Joker that was released in... 2019, you all probably know it, Joaquin Phoenix was it, he won an Oscar for it, the whole nine yards. The other one was the one played by Heath Ledger in The Dark Knight, which also won, he won a posthumous Best Supporting Actor Award, arguably the greatest film villain of all time, or of modern time at least, a lot of people think he is, I certainly think he is. And, um, you know, so I was looking at seeing The Dark Knight the other day, I'd seen, I've seen both movies a lot, because I think there's a lot in both these movies, and I thought that they both really had something to say about the way society worked. This was pre-pandemic when I wrote this, so it'll be interesting to see what happens when I, you know, really bust it open and see like if these actually did come true and they are and if they are coming true throughout the rest of the thing. And I think they will. So it'll be interesting to see. I have not read this since I published it. 
So I was thinking of just kind of getting right into it and seeing where it takes us. So first of all, I want to give a spoiler warning for the films Dark Knight or The Dark Knight, Joker, and Taxi Driver. So listen at your own risk. I would, I would, I highly recommend all three of these movies. They're excellent films. So I would watch all three of those before I get into this. So anyway, now that's over. Here we go. So in the age of peddling popcorn flicks, we usually get treated to the same spiel over and over again. A buff hero, probably played by Dwayne The Rock Johnson, who is just the worst. I'm not a, I'm not a Dwayne The Rock Johnson fan. I respect the guy as a person, but his movies are, are just terrible. Comes in, says a few poorly written lines, and leaves the film in good standing. This is especially a common trend in the superhero genre, and The Rock just signed on to play Black Adam, a superhero, go figure. It's the same cliche over and over again. Film is perhaps the most difficult of the arts to perfect. It has to balance modern societal trends with historical film stereotypes, evoking emotion and thought along the way. Well, at least when it's done properly. A lot of the times it isn't, especially recently in the age of mass commercialization of film. Yes, Marvel, I'm talking to you. However, there is one character that has been able to break from this mold and teach us a ton about modern-day society, a character that has been able to connect with us and shake us to our core enough to question even the most seemingly menial things about ourselves. And that character, as I alluded to earlier, is the Joker. The Joker is, as intended to be written, an enigma. No one, not even the writers, I don't think, had any idea of who this guy was supposed to be, or end up being, rather. There's been at least some fucking trillion different origin stories, all conflicting with one another in a macabre spider web of history that no one can navigate. And that's what makes the character so brilliant. Is it because you can't figure him out? No one can, not even himself. He is whoever he wants to be. He is a clean slate. He doesn't have to play by the rules. He's not have to conform to anything or anyone. And this, in an age of conformity, terrifies us. It shakes us to our core that any person can create a facade out of thin air and bend the world to his will to craft it in his image. And the two films that have done the greatest job of highlighting this are The Dark Knight and Joker. There are a ton of similarities between the compositions of the films themselves. They are made almost a decade apart. They are incredibly relevant and timely films if you consider the context in which they were released into the world. They have unique societal frameworks of social issues that they address. They both had incredible award-winning performances by the great Joaquin Phoenix and the late great Heath Ledger, who were lauded as two of the greatest acting forces of their respective times. Yet, they are fundamentally different to their core as well. One is a story of stasis, the other of metamorphosis. One is a story of who we are, the other of who we could potentially become. One is a story of despair, the other a story of veiled hope. Additionally, each one teaches us different things, things that are still important to us in this day and age of endless confusion and questioning. My goal by the end of this article is to deconstruct these, or this podcast, rather, remember I'm reading off the post, is to deconstruct these narratives and pull out meaning from them just for practical application to our own lives. So let's get started. We have a lot of work to do. So let's begin with Heath Ledger's Joker. The Dark Knight came out in 2008 on the hinge of the worst financial crisis the world had seen since the Great Depression. Unemployment was in double-digit percent, a new president was coming in, and the lack of trust in corporate America, specifically banking and financial services, was at a low we hadn't seen in a very long time. This lack of trust can be seen throughout the film, and it certainly shapes its context. When we first see him, the Joker is robbing a bank with several of his henchmen. However, no one knows that the Joker is there, including the other men. 
They're all wearing clown masks and thinking the Joker is pulling the strings from outside the robbery. All is going well, and the robbery is going as planned. But then everyone starts to kill each other. And I'm not talking about the hostages at the bank. I'm talking about the Joker's own guys. They all simultaneously kill one one another off, all saying that the Joker promised the crew more money, and that crew member specifically, for them individually, if there's one less share to go around. When we get to the final guy, he's wised up to the plan, and he threatens to kill the other clown, who secretly actually is the Joker, in fear of getting killed himself. The Joker then carefully moves in a circle, which conveniently leaves the last man near the wall. Then a hijacked school bus bursts through like the Kool-Aid man, runs the dude over like it's nothing, and pops open the back door. The bus driver gets out, completely ignorant of the real plan, and gets mowed down by the Joker as well, leaving him as the last man standing. As he's throwing all the money that he robbed into the bus, the fatally wounded manager of the bank, who has been paid off by the mob, calls the Joker out for not following the unwritten criminal code. He's broken all the rules, according to him. There is a way that criminals do things, and there's the way that criminals do not do things, and the Joker is in the latter category. The Joker begins to approach him, with the man shouting with his death approaching, quote, what do you believe in, at him. The Joker then calmly shoves a grenade in his mouth, and says perhaps the most important line in the entire film, quote, I believe that whatever doesn't kill you simply makes you stranger, end quote. The Joker then hums to himself, hooks the grenade on the back door of the bus, and yanks the pin out of the dude's mouth while pulling the school bus onto the street, filed conveniently in line with the other buses on the way home from school. Talk about a fucking headache. The line might seemingly seem relatively insignificant, but it sets the tone for the entire rest of the film. The Joker says that he believes in something so insignificant, so vain, that it can't possibly be true. Or can it? There are many ways to interpret the line of the film, but I think my definition is the most concrete, not sounding narcissistic at all here, obviously. And it's because the Joker is a nihilist. He simply believes in nothing. Nothing at all. He is aspiring to nothing, bound to nothing, and upholden to nothing. And that, my friends, is absolutely fucking terrifying. If there's one thing humans fear as a whole, it's the concept of nothing. Because when we are enveloped in nothing, there are no rules. There is no one to tell us how to live. There is no one to tell us right from wrong. So, therefore, there are no rules. There is no concrete way to live. There is no right and wrong. Humans are not wired to handle that level of ambiguity and uncertainty. That's why it terrifies us so much. We're creatures of habit and products of our environment. When we have no habits and we have no set environment, we don't know what to do with ourselves. Don't believe me? Think back to all the evidence in human history. When Greece, when Greece sacked Rome and the Great Wall outside the city fell, it signified, or when the, Huts, when the Huns sacked Rome and the Great Wall outside the city fell, it signified the collapse of the established order. When the established order fell and the significance of the most impenetrable city in the... Oh, geez, I got this fucking wrong. Holy shit. Oh my God, I'm... Ugh. <laughs> I'm, I'm misquoting my Homer here. So think back to this evidence in human history. When the Greeks sacked Troy and the Great Wall outside the city fell it signified the collapse of the established order. When the established order fell, and the significance of the most impenetrable city in the world was reduced to nothing, the Trojans lost all belief in it. What happens immediately afterward was destruction of the highest order. Children were slaughtered by the hundreds, women were mercilessly beaten, raped, and killed, and the whole city was burned to nothing. When the city lost belief, they descended into anarchy. 
anarchy then turned into a physical nothing. And then, according to legends, they went off and they founded Rome and all that other stuff. But until then, it was pretty shitty. Before World War I, Nazi Germany was flying high in all aspects. The pride in the homeland was immense. However, after the war had ended and the Germans lost, the Allied powers took every opportunity to crush the Germans into submission in economics, politics, whatever. That sense of German pride was reduced to nothing. This led to hyperinflation the likes of that has been never seen never been seen ever since but maybe current day Venezuela. The people were impoverished and dying in the streets. The government had no real power. All industry had either been destroyed or taken away from them. It wasn't until some guy named Adolf became relevant that the country ascended out of its nothingness and, predictably, into something much more worse. Or much worse, rather. Alfred Pennyworth, the butler of Bruce Wayne, or Batman, explains this with an anecdote of his own. Alfred, at one point, worked for the Burmese government as a young man with some of his friends. In order to buy the loyalty of local tribe leaders, the government was using jewelry and other stones to bribe them. However, they were being constantly harassed and thwarted by a jewel thief, who would steal the stones and keep the government powerless to control the country. Alfred later discovered that once the bandits stole the stones, he would simply throw them away, not using them for anything at all. When Bruce asked him for his motivation behind this, Alfred replies, quote, Well, because he thought it was good sport. Because some men aren't looking for anything logical, like money. They can't be bought, bullied, reasoned, or negotiated with. Some men just want to watch the world burn. End quote. Sorry for my lack of British accent. I, I, can't, I can't do Michael Caine like that, so I apologize. <laughs> this quote is the reason why no one can figure out the Joker. He simply doesn't live in their world. If he did, that bank manager would have had him pinned in two seconds. But the Joker doesn't want money. He wants to see what people would do when they don't have money. He wants to see human nature when everything in their world is taken from them, and they have to navigate his world of nihilism. He wants to see the human, human spirit fold and be crushed by the weight that impermanence holds over them. He then proceeds to corrode and destroy every institution he touches from the inside, forcing them into a trial by fire to either enter his world or perish in the process. Because they can't attack the Joker due to the fact that he has no base upon which to attack, they all fall like dominoes one by one, victims of everything they hold near and dear to themselves. Until Bruce Wayne discovers the one way to defeat the Joker. By the climax of the film, the Joker has toppled the Mafia, the police, and the Justice Department, and anarchy has begun to, begin to unfold upon the entire city. He has turned the most prestigious justice official, District Attorney Harvey Dent, into a mass-murdering psychopath by destroying everything he holds dear, ruining his physical appearance with severe burns, upending the government he serves, and killing his girlfriend, and the best friend of Bruce Wayne or Batman, Rachel Dawes. People are fleeing the city in droves, most notably in two ferries, one filled with civilians and the other filled with violent convicts, as the city officials are worried about the Joker weaponizing them to further his reign of terror. The Joker has rigged both boats with explosives, and hijacks the intercom to give the two parties an ultimatum. One of the boats has to blow the other up before midnight, or the Joker will kill all of them from his master detonator in the building he is perched in. This is his final stab into the heart of Gotham, the turning point to totally shatter any remaining humanity that the city has left. When Batman arrives to confront him, their fight ends with the Joker pinning him down as the clock strikes midnight forcing him to watch the seemingly inevitable ending of humans destroying each other like rats in a sewer, so desperate to save themselves that they will throw away any shred of dignity to do so, to ascend into anarchy, 
into nothing. But strangely enough, that's exactly what happens. Nothing. Midnight is struck and both, both, both boats are still floating. The people have not destroyed each other or themselves. People stepped up on both sides and said enough was enough. Out of the inevitable, they found a way out. They have something to believe in. The commonality that all people aren't at their core inherently evil and selfish. That they won't succumb to the darkness. Batman says this to him right to his face, actually. Quote, What were you trying to prove? That deep down, everyone's just as ugly as you? You're alone. End quote. This is the first time we see the Joker face weakness, adversity, confusion. And Batman capitalizes on it, uses that precious time to apprehend the Joker and protect the people on the boats. There was still the whole Harvey Dent Two-Face situation to deal with, but the main threat of the problem has been dealt with. Why? Because they believed in something. They had been presented with anarchy, with despair, with darkness, and yet they still believed in the goodness of humanity. And that is the only thing that can defeat true hopelessness. Belief. It's his exact opposite, actually. What Heath Ledger's Joker tells us about society is that there are a lot of people out there that don't believe in anything. A lot of people are lost because of a lack of foundational roots, whether that be Allah, God, values, devil worship, Don Draper, literally fucking anything on Mad Men, whatever. The people who don't have that fun fundamental anchor have nothing to tether themselves to reality, and therefore can get sucked into the false re reality of feeling like they have no direction. The Joker that Heath Ledger portrayed showed us that it is an incredibly easy thing to do to fall into this trap, if we let ourselves fall into it. Only through a very arduous and painful process can we fully appreciate and recognize our belief in something. And this is not easy to come to terms with. I'm still personally struggling, struggling to find it as I write the sentence. I wrote a whole post on the religious shit a couple weeks ago. But I'm going to keep punching until I hit something, and I suggest you do the same. When we have true belief in something, we lose all sense of fear all sense of hopelessness. We can finally ascend into what we want to be. Without that belief, we are lost, as evidenced by Heath Ledger's Joker. As a final proof and thought of this concept, I want to leave you with the most harrowing exchange of the film, one that still shakes me every time I watch it. After the, jo the Joker ruthlessly mutilates Harvey Dent and kills Rachel Dawes, Bruce Wayne is sitting in his penthouse, absolutely shaken to his core, and stripped of everything that's clinging him to reality for the most part. He cannot eat or sleep without thinking of the despair, the failure that is thrown into his face every day by the seemingly unstoppable force that is the Joker. Alfred goes up to deliver him food, but turns away as soon as he sees that Bruce isn't responding. Right before he leaves, Bruce calls back to him and asks him, quote, Alfred, that bandit in the forest of, in Burma, did you catch him? Yes. How? We burned the forest down. Joaquin Phoenix's Joker, in the 2019 film Joker, like I mentioned before, is similar yet very different from the one played by Heath Ledger. As soon as I left the theater, I immediately recognized the similarities between the film and Taxi Driver, Martin Scorsese's second big film of the 1970s, starring Robert De Niro, who, ironically or maybe not, played the main male role supporting character in, the jo in Joker. Taxi Driver is a film centered on the mental health and social standing of a recently returned Vietnam War veteran in the 1970s named Travis Bickle. The economy sucks. 
This is during the time of the gas crisis and other economic activities that led to the inducing of the 1980 Paul Volcker recession, which eventually led to the economic boom of the 1980s. Large amounts of people can't get jobs or stable wages, so crime and villainy skyrockets. The Vietnam War, one of the most controversial and unpopular topics in all of American history, had a, the most profound effect on our veterans. There were groups of people that treated them as at, like absolute dog shit, with people calling them names like Baby Killer and spitting on them as they returned home from overseas. The main character, as I mentioned before, Travis Bickle, explores the other side of that abuse and its effects. In addiction to massive paranoia and schizophrenia, Bickle can't sleep because of insomnia, so he takes a job as a taxi driver at night, hence the name of the film. He openly talks about people doing drugs in the back seat, verbally harassing him, even having to clean their semen off the seats before he records the car back to the owner of the car in the morning. The only market he serves is that of the lowliest parts of New York, which he avidly despises and describes in this quote, quote, All the animals come at night, come out at night. Whores, skunk pussies, buggers, queens, fairies, dopers, junkies, sick, vanal. Someday a real rain will come and wash all this scum off the streets, end quote. The real rain does come, eventually, but I won't spoil that for you. It's too good not to see for yourself. Definitely not to be watched in front of the faint of heart and the weak of stomach, though. This one gets pretty hardcore, even for a mid-1970s film, where all this was pretty much, you know, vi like, no one, just no one wanted to see that shit back in the day. Joker takes place in similarly hellish conditions. This story is set in Gotham City in 1981, about a year after the implementation of the Paul Volcker recession. To give some brief context... A recession, as we all now know from COVID, again, I'm seeing this post for the first time in probably over a year, a recession is when an economy is doing poorly for an extended period of time. The reason why this is important in this context is because the United States government in 1980 purposefully induced this recession, if you can believe that. Newly elected President Ronald Reagan was inaugurated in 1980, with the immense economic issues of the 1970s looming, including one they had never seen before, something called stagflation. Stagflation is a period of time where unemployment and inflation are both going up at high rates at the same time. The reason why this is a big deal is that, according to economic theory, this should be impossible. The two variables are inversely correlated, according to economics, and should have the opposite effect when one goes up versus when one goes down. To confront this problem, President Reagan saw that the only way out was to purposefully induce a recession to stop the inflation, which he viewed as the greater of the two evils. As we're seeing now, prices are rising. I, I think I saw an estimate actually this morning that was reported by a government institution, I forget which one, that we're expecting to see a just fucking huge 4.5% increase in our overall CPI, or the Consumer Price Index CPI. It's normally about 2%, so it's going to double this year. So that's, that's, uh, that's something to look forward to, I guess. So Paul Volcker, who is the lead economic official under Ronald Reagan, raised interest rates so incredibly high that they crashed the economy, therefore sending unemployment numbers through the roof. The strategy eventually panned out, but it was a long and brutal two years before it started, started to turn into what was known as the greatest economic expansions in the history of the United States. In hindsight, this was a necessary thing to do to combat the horrific conditions of the economy, at least in most cases. But in the current time, many people, several of my family members can vouch for this, thought that the actions by the United States government gave off a clear signal. You don't care about us. By raising rates so high, no one could borrow, so companies had to lay off tremendous amounts of workers. 
There was so much money in the system due to inflation that purchasing power decreased tremendously among consumers, making everything cost more and reducing disposable income by an immense amount. Now, if you're an average American and the government cuts the legs out from under you by removing you from your job and reducing your ability to provide for you and your family monetarily, how are you going to feel? And the answer is pissed off. Really pissed off. Additionally, the people that aren't as phased by this are the people on the complete opposite side of the spectrum. The corporations, government officials, and people with more wealth than your average American man or woman. Identity politics are perhaps the most dangerous intangible weapon in America today. Pitting one group against another in mob fashion that is, is never a good way to go for, like, almost anything. Joker is fundamentally a movie about classism, detailing this struggle versus, between the haves and the have-nots, like a modern version of Les Mis, only with clowns. Additionally, the people involved in creating the, picture, the film were also careful to make it relevant in terms of maybe the biggest cultural movement going on currently in America, mental health. If, the jo if Joker does anything right, it does a great job of showing how absolutely fucking awful and negligent we were to mental health and people with mental health conditions during this time. Now, to be fair, this is not without context. This is a time before knowledge we was possessed now in a world with much bigger problems than we have currently, under, like the war, the Cold War with Russia, the Berlin Wall, that awful fun shit, you know, that we had to deal with back then. Anyways, it's understandable that we didn't treat mental health as well as we should have. But still, we could have done better, like we usually can in most situations. The bottom line is that mental health suffers in this film, and it's startling. The main evidence of this is shown in the lead character, Arthur Fleck, played by the aforementioned Joaquin Phoenix. Arthur is a middle-aged man who works as a clown for hire, with aspirations of being a stand-up comic. He lives in the dump of an apartment with his mother, who is also mentally ill, very mentally ill, I should say, in one of the more economically impoverished areas in the city sit areas in the city. He also has a variety of mental health issues himself. He has a disorder where he laughs at inappropriate times and cannot control when or for how long it occurs. He also displays signs of anxiety, delusion, depression, paranoia, schizophrenia, and is dependent on medication prescribed from the government to keep him somewhat under control. Due to his social awkwardness, Arthur is subject to the torment of many people. His co-workers would demean and mock him, his mother plays down his emotions, his psychiatrist doesn't give him proper advice, and people from around the city abuse him emotionally, mentally, and physically, even beating him in the streets and robbing him of his money. In short, Arthur has been dealt just about the shittiest hand you can imagine. But he also has not taken control of his life either. By not sticking up for himself, he has been subjecting himself to the bullying and ridicule of others for his entire life. While it was not his fault that he was put in these circumstances... At the end of the day, it's still his responsibility to fix it. Arthur eventually runs into a situation where he's taking a late-night train from work and runs into three drunk finance guys, a problem even in the movies, I know, who works for Wayne Enterprises, run by Thomas Wayne, the richest man in the city, even among all the poverty, who is considered a run for mayor. They make, the men make cruel jokes, and Arthur begins to laugh inappropriately. I should say that Thomas Wayne is also Bruce Wayne, Batman's father, by the way. The three men, not knowing that this isn't something that he can control, take offense and start gang-beating Arthur to death on the train. And they don't just stop at one punch. They keep going. Arthur is pushed into a flight-or-fight scenario. Out of instinct, he reaches for a gun, given to him amazingly by a co-worker for his own protection, shoots two of them dead, and wounds the other. He then chases the man other man out of the bus and shoots him several more times, killing him. 
Fearing for his life, Arthur runs away and locks himself into a public bathroom. However, once he locks himself in, the emotions he expresses seem quite strange, but really aren't. He's calm. He's stable. Satisfied, even. He calmly sets his bag down and begins to dance an elegant routine around the room, completely comfortable with his actions, no matter how heinous they were. What the audience saw during those moments was the first glimpses of a man who had finally broken out of the hellhole that he and society had held him in. He was finally permitted to be who he was and stick up for himself, not to be shit and spit on by the higher establishment, whom he views as his enemy. He took a stand, put his foot in the ground, and said enough is enough. This stance resonates with other people in the same position. As news of the murders leak out, the authorities and news crews cannot identify Arthur, as he was still in clown makeup during the time of the slaughter. The symbol of the clown soon becomes deified, with mobs of underprivileged people marching on corporations in City Hall with a sinister slogan blazed across them. That slogan? Kill the rich. This is where we started to lose a lot of viewers, and why, in my opinion, the movie is so masterful. I'll get to a more sinister example later, but the movie is beginning to flip on the tide of, human, of the human emotion of empathy. We feel so badly for Arthur, and of those who have, let, have it less fortunate than we do, that we let our emotions overwhelm our logic, which is almost never a good thing to do. Eventually, Arthur and the audience figure out that his mom adopted him, and let her then-boyfriend seriously abuse her and Arthur. The memories are so traumatic to Arthur that he has forced them out of his own memory, the most heinous being that the police once found him tied to the apartment radiator, near death. His mother then constructed a narrative that Arthur's father is Thomas Wayne, driving her insane with the delusion that he was going to save her and her son from the awful fate of an impoverished life. Arthur, feeling his newfound power for the first time, begins to seize control of his life. However, being in the awful mental state he's in, he doesn't know how to properly do this. So what he does is I t so he does what I talked about in my podcast on mindless positivity and emotional overcompensation. He emotionally overcompensates. To right the wrong of the past, he visits his mother, who is in the hospital after suffering a stroke, and smothers her with a pillow. The audience is mixed about this. On one hand, Arthur has just committed matricide. He killed his own mother in brutal fashion. But on the other hand, he got even. He got rid of the woman that has deliberately allowed him to be in the pain and torment for his entire life, even as he cared for her as she slipped into madness. The slippery slope continues. Arthur is then invited on a show hosted by Murray Franklin, played by Robert De Niro, as I mentioned earlier. Arthur had bombed a stand-up routine due to his laughing and someone got it on video. It made his way to Murray's television show, where he made fun of him on national television. When getting ready, he is visited by two former co-workers who have come to pay respects to his now-dead mother, one of whom gave him the gun that he used to kill the men earlier in the film. Arthur, by this point, has gone off the rails. Arthur Fleck is now dead. The Joker has taken his place. Arthur now knows no bounds between right and wrong. He only knows his false sense of justice and injustice, which is justified by his emotional overcompensation. When the Joker sees the man who gave him the gun, he manipulates him into coming into his apartment and then stabs him repeatedly with a pair of scissors, blood spewing all over the room and all over himself. After the stabbing, the Joker calmly turns to the other man. The other man is a midget. He is also constantly made fun of by the other co-workers. He was the only one who treated Arthur with genuine kindness and respect. 
They had a kinship and their mutual oddness. The Joker then tells him to go, no different than saying hi to someone walking down the street. He was the only one that was nice to him. So therefore, he's the only one that meets the Joker's ideal version of morally correct human behavior. After the other man leaves, the Joker leaves the apartment to go on to Murray's show. In a scene containing some of the most incredibly genius cinematography I've ever seen, the Joker completes his transformation. He literally descends into madness. He dances down the stairs to Rock and Roll Part 2 by Gary Glitter, completely comfortable with who he is and what he's done. He doesn't care about society. And, in his logic, why should he? They don't give a fuck about him, right? Now, at this point, I've been sitting in the theater going, holy fuck, holy fuck, holy fuck, in trepidation of the downfall of the man's sanity. I was mortified when the Joker literally took a man to pieces with a common household appliance. Therefore, I'm expecting people to do the same. But they don't. And they didn't. In fact, most of the audience cheered when the Joker ripped the dude open, blood spurting onto his face as he gleefully got revenge. This is where I fully saw the danger of what the film was trying to portray. We need to be empathetic towards people, of course. I talked about this earlier in a podcast as well. However, there is such a thing as too much empathy. There is a line that cannot be crossed. Just because Arthur Fleck Fleck has been dealt a shit hand in life, that is in no way an excuse for the Joker to instigate terror across his world. And this, as I alluded to in my podcast on emotional overcompensation, the danger of our emotions and emotional overcompensation. When we allow our emotions to override our logic and hijack our brains, we open avenues of reckless danger on multiple fronts. Emotions are triggered by our subconscious minds, which are far more powerful than our conscious minds. Most of us don't realize this, and so most of us live off our subconscious pulling the strings. When left unchecked, this can allow us to wage war on our world for reasons that have no justification, reasons that can leave ways of overcorrection on people who don't deserve them. Was Arthur's mom horrible? Yes. Did she deserve to be smothered in a pillow hospital by her own son? No. Was the guy who gave Arthur the gun wrong? Yes. Did he deserve to have his neck rip open by a pair of scissors? No. But, in the Joker's mind, of course they deserved it. The Joker abandoned those rules, just like he thought society had abandoned him. Just like those mobs of people throughout that society had abandoned them. Just like so many people in our world, particularly today after the coronavirus and after the social protests of the last year, feel like society has abandoned them. At the end of the film, the Joker continues his rampage and becomes an icon to the downtrodden and mentally ill, culminating with a riot in which they all rise up to, quote, kill the rich. The Joker ends up in Arkham Asylum, the Gotham City Mental Institution, where he is left with all his delusions. Was all this real? We may never know. The Joker that Joaquin Phoenix portrayed shows the duality of empathy and how it should be managed. We need to be empathetic towards people. We need to help raise others up, even if they are not not willing to meet us. If not, we must help people find solutions to these problems and have them create those avenues themselves. However, there is also a thing as too much empathy. We cannot simply enable people to do what they want out of their misplaced sense of moral justification simply because they had no empathy shown to them in the past. There must be rules to the game. If not, well, Keith Ledger's Joker has the answer to that question. To prove how misplaced the logic is, I'll leave you with the final quote from Phoenix's Joker. Quote, 
I killed those guys because they were awful. Everybody is awful these days. It's enough to make anyone crazy. The reason that these characters are so great and why they will be immortalized forever is because they remind us of our own reality, of our own issues. They force us to look at ourselves in the mirror and confront who they really are, or who we really are. Only in confronting who these characters are and what they can teach us can we confront ourselves and what we need to teach ourselves. We need to create an environment where we believe in things and where we manage our empathy in appropriate fashion. Both of these situations lead to destruction when they are not done properly. To preserve our society and keep our minds open for free thought, we need to be constantly be reminded of how precious and vital both of them are. Otherwise, we leave ourselves open for misinterpretation of who we really are as a society. These misinterpretations can be taken for reality. When that happens, those misinterpretations do become reality. And that reality is not real. But we might mistake it for it to be. In one of the most famous comics in the Batman anthology, Batman has been captured by the Joker and his men is, and his men is, and is being held hostage. Having Batman right where he, they want him, one of the Joker's men says, quote, Take off his mask. Let's see his face. The Joker then replies, quote, What are you talking about? That is his face. Could the same eventually be said about us? So, I'll leave you with that, guys. That was actually very enjoyable. I actually like that one a lot. I like that post. So, up on don'treadthisblog.com. Again, have a great weekend, guys. Week ahead. Own the day. Open your mind. Thanks for listening, everyone. Stopping, hopping like a rabbit When I take the Nina Ross, you know I got to have it I lay back in the cut, retain myself Think about the shit and I think it well How can I make some grip? And how should I make that nigga straight?